Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're all kind of held back by the flaws of the system. Replacing the people within the system isn't necessarily the solution. It's really giving them the tools so that the system can be better for all of us. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On the show today, another epic DeLorean throwback to the past episode with Hallie Tecco, an origin story convened through the heyday of Livestrong and born of the shared desire to make cancer suck less and fix whatever the hell is wrong with healthcare. Aside from being one of the most ambitious, talented, relentless, and startup junkiest actual innovators... I know besides the FOMO I have for whatever it is that still means to have a blue check mark on Twitter, come on, Jack, give me that blue check mark. Hallie has consistently been at the forefront of what's next at the intersections of patient advocacy, health tech, and startup culture. And while her BS, MPH, and MBA may be great acronyms attached to her credentials, her real superhero power is being an inner social justice warrior while assembling incredible teams and roosting on the observation deck manifesting actual progress you can see. Beyond swapping more stories between two IVF parents and perhaps the ill-conceived notion of cost-benefit around parenting, there's talk of copper landlines, Friendster, and when none of us had any idea what we were trying to do in the mid-2000s, we were all in agreement that we do it together. Enjoy the show. Hallie Teco, thank you so much for joining me here on Out of Patience. It's been a long time coming for this epic band reunion. Yes, thank you, Matthew. I'm excited to talk to you today. So my listeners love to hear all the retro throwback, like how the hell did we get from here to there? And what was life like back when, you know, copper landlines and corded phones ruled the world before Friendster and MySpace? It's impossible to think we lived through those times to get to where we are today. And yet here we are missing radio and I'm bringing it back. I love it. I think this is one of the best vintage throwbacks there has been. Podcasts are awesome. They are. And you, know, you were on my radio show. We didn't call it podcasts back when it was a radio <laughs> show. The internet radio show. That was what I had at Stupid Cancer. Yeah. And we met 2006, 7, 8, around the time of the early emergence of digital health and what that meant and what did the next generation of internet mean to everyone. But we met through this really fascinating, almost emotional connection to cancer when Stupid Cancer's San Francisco chapter took off and you had a program called Yoga Bear. Let's start with that. Sure. So 
you know, we connected so early in my journey in healthcare. Um, so yeah, we first connected when I was doing a lot of volunteer work in the cancer community and I was involved in uh, the Live Strong movement of volunteers. And I was running on the side, a small nonprofit that was working with yoga studios in San Francisco to donate excess capacity to cancer survivors. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we just connected as, as people who were passionate about serving patients and especially young um, cancer patients and survivors. So, you know, it, it somewhat runs itself now. Um, but it was really my first time kind of bridging the gap between the establishment and, and care models and people um, and really kind of the consumerization of the healthcare experience has been a thread throughout my entire career and yours as well. Yeah, all of my conversations with the besties from the mid 2000s have been that none of us had any idea what the hell we were doing, but we just knew we were all on to something. Yeah, I still don't know what I'm doing. Do you? <laughs> I think, you know, it's like to quote Buzz Lightyear falling with style, we just do whatever we can to endure it. <laughs> exactly. Well, we well, we were in many ways the patients and I'm not, a, I'm not a cancer survivor. You obviously are, but I have other pieces of my life where I am a patient. And so I think having that firsthand experience and realizing, especially at the time, how few resources were really geared towards that patient experience. We certainly were ahead of our time, um, but it was, it was out of necessity. I mean, who would have thought that cancer is more than just your body part? I, oh man. And I'm involved in healthcare broadly. And so, you know, cancer still is a theme in my work and working, especially on my MPH and understanding, you know, disparities of outcomes. You know, you, I, I still see how the holistic viewpoint of the patient is still not, not there yet, I guess. Um, we still lack really good tools for education, for helping people make life-changing decisions on care. Um, there's still a lot of holes that are, are slowly getting plugged, but it's still, um, you know, most of the resources are going towards drugs and biotech and not necessarily towards changing the experience emotionally that someone's going through. How do you feel about the following analogy? I've been saying this for years, but it's kind of maybe it's whittled down to something that actually is is a quick and understandable is that when no one ever asks to get cancer, no one ever asks to enter the healthcare system when bad things happen to good people. And it's kind of a store that's supply only and uh, there's no demand for it. And when you walk in the store, there's no one to tell you what to do to help you. And one might argue that the system is working according to plan based on what you might think happened in the 70s. It isn't geared for customer service when the end user is ideally a prescriber. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that's right on. Yeah, no one, no one wants to go into that store, that's for sure. The medical experts are so deep into their field that there is a disconnect between what they know and what patients know because they're so deep into the, the medical science and the biology of disease and they don't necessarily have the time to really walk someone through their journey of making those decisions and how to think about them. I mean, they really just have their medical hat on. And, and that's that that's something that is missing, kind of the idea of the the care coordinator. Um, I've heard you know that term used and I've seen it in models for 
helping people with chronic illnesses. But yeah, I mean, you, you, you walk into the store and then there's someone who's literally speaking another language. That's essentially what it is. is right. Your doctor's there speaking another language. Um, and especially for people who might have already mistrust of the system due to cultural differences, due to the systemic racism, which is prevalent in our healthcare system, language barriers. Certainly there are cost and access barriers. So that store really does. Um, and that customer experience looks different based on who you are um, and not necessarily in a good way. I mean, you've had advocacy in your DNA since I met you. And, I, you know, it's like I didn't have cancer. You shouldn't have to have something bad happen to you to be an advocate and want to help the world. So channeling your startup junkie, angel investor, blue Twitter checkmarkness, uh, you've invested in over 100 companies, maybe more through your efforts. Has there been a consistent theme around this idea of customer service and access at the patient level? Absolutely. You know, when I was working at Rock Health, so we invest in, in exclusively digital health, my partner there, Malay Gandhi, and I basically a lot of times are just kind of split the deals. He was really passionate about the infrastructure of healthcare, and he kind of came from the consulting world, and he kind of liked to think through these big, messy infrastructure problems. Um, and I preferred to really focus on the consumer stuff. Um, and so we collaborated a lot in that way because that's that has been where my passion has always been is on the consumer experience. And Regina Herslinger was a professor at HBS when I was there. Um, you know, she wrote like the book on the consumerization of healthcare, um, called it really early on that there was this movement that was happening. So I would say that is kind of the thread throughout my work as an investor, as an advocate, as someone who talks too much, um, <laughs> has really been around the the patient experience and also bringing to light a lot of the discrimination that exists within the system, a lot of the inequities that are a result of, you know, years and years of oppression. Yeah. So this goes back to what I call the ebb tide of progress, which is you make a step forward and it shows you the the batch of sand when the ocean pulls out. Oh, we missed this now. Let's go to mm. this particular place. And, you know, oh, when, I like that. Yeah. I mean, when cancer survivorship became a word in the 90s, the yeah. breast cancer movement became a real thing. Livestrong came to prowess. We then turned to, oh, we're missing out on your quality of life. And then once it got to that, oh, that includes fertility. Oh, wait, that includes your being black. Oh, wait, that includes your being gay. So every step we make forward reveals the thing we haven't seen before. Again, going back to the trends and the themes and the teaching you've learned at Rock Health investing in these companies, is there any one particular narrative or success story that really stands out? A lot of things, but I, I think when I see companies that are fighting against the system, they tend to not do well. <laughs> when I see companies uh, or people, really, I should say, when I see organizations, when I see individuals that are able to understand the flaws of our system, yet still work alongside the stakeholders of the system to drive change, that is where I've seen the biggest impact. So instead of coming in and saying, you know, we have this paternalistic medical system and doctors need to be replaced by robots, you know, that I haven't seen that succeed, <laughs> but groups coming in and saying, you know, doctors need to be freed up to use their time to, to do what they are best at and most uniquely trained to do. 
And here are the tools to help them do their job better. And so let's work with the system to improve the system versus just completely replace it. And so again and again, I see this narrative and it's easy to come in and point to all the flaws of the healthcare system, but that doesn't help anyone. (laughs) You need to also be solutions oriented and recognize that there is a system. It's made up of people who do have the best of heart. Healthcare is the best people, the best people I've worked with because they they genuinely care about doing good and making a difference. And while we're all kind of held back by the flaws of the system, replacing the people within the system isn't necessarily the solution. It's really giving them the tools so that the system can be better for all of us. You you triggered something in my brain with that thought before about doctors being robots. This has been a (laughs) concurrent conversation for many, many years. Do you want your oncologist to be a robot, an empath, somewhere in between, and is that even possible? And either way, is there a nurse, a coordinator, a social worker, there are these board-certified patient advocates now cropping up? Like, where in the, again, the Walmart greeter world lies empathy? Okay, I think all of us would have different answers. My husband would say, I want a robot. I, I want the empath at the bedside who is using tools um, that reduce the chances of a misdiagnosis um, that help optimize uh, the best treatment path for myself, optimize and personalize the best treatment path, that they're using those tools on the back end to then deliver to me and explain to me my situation as a patient and what they think I should do, showing the data. But for me, I want a physician who cares about me and makes me feel like I'm in good hands and that I'm cared for and that I'm not just another number. But I want them to have access to all the data to help make help me make a decision that is not just based on, you know, flipping a coin, <laughs> um, but really based on personalized data to understand what's going to be the best path for my success. Yeah. Knowing that the 90s sucked in general and that I was diagnosed in the 90s, I, I kind of forgive it for being what it was. There was no idea that you're a person when you have cancer. I mean, I was a pianist. My left hand didn't work. They wanted to give me chemo that would have ruined my left hand. You know, hopefully that doesn't happen anymore, but it would have been nice in retrospect in my DeLorean to go back and have them say, you know what? You're a pianist. We're going to try to do our best to make sure you can keep playing. So what is the 2020 version of that for a low literacy, low income community cancer patient? Yeah. Interesting. Um, Well, Yesterday, I got a call from my aunt in Aspen, and she had um, previously had breast cancer, which she was treated for, but along the ways, it has now um, developed in her her bones. And she unfortunately doesn't drive and has to take four buses to get to the cancer center that's closest to her. And so she called me to see if, you know, I had uh, thoughts on her going to a clinic in Tijuana. As you can imagine, my thoughts on going to her going to a clinic in Tijuana was not how I would recommend her move forward. But I think that, you know, thinking through her experience as a low-income elderly person, her priorities are to get care and be able to access that care. And going five days a week for radiation 
on four buses back and forth at 80 years old, you know, isn't feasible. You know, there's the social aspects that surround getting care. Do you have someone to take care of you? Do you have someone to pick up your medications? Do you have, you know, time off work? There are so many pieces to it that are exacerbated in 2020 because, Things are shut down and, you know, you also people who are, uh, you know, at higher risk of dying from COVID are the ones who might have no choice but to face more exposure. So, you know, there is a program. I can't even think of the name of it right now, but there was a program that I heard about out of Boston that was not specifically towards any specialty. It was actually a, a, a PCP program where physicians had a script book that they could write scripts for non-medical things. So they could say, you know, go to a yoga class. Here's, you know, some coupons to the grocery store. Here are, you know, they, they had various nonprofits kind of in the back end. So here's a service that will deliver you food, like the Meals on Wheels program that you can access. And I loved learning about it. I saw them at TED Med and years ago, and I loved hearing that because I think for someone living in those conditions, their care is just one of many, many, many things on their mind, along with uh, shelter, food, you know, that goes all along with kind of quality of life. And as a physician, you might not be able to see the entire life of a patient, you're seeing their medical records. And so yeah, I think that that's, I've been talking too long, I'll let you chime in. But I do think that um, there are ways that we can help the healthcare model see people as whole people in their life experiences and what's happening elsewhere in their life. Back with our guest after the break. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
like channeling your my FOMO on your blue Twitter checkmark, which I will not ever stop. You don't have a checkmark yet? You know what? They stopped giving the checkmarks out like the day after I asked for one. So, really? But you know who has one? Kenny Kane, who? my co-founder at Super Cancer. He, ha- he got a blue checkmark and I did on the founder. And, you know, anyway, <laughs> we're having a ther- therapy moment here on, on. Honestly, I'm so over Twitter. <laughs> I, I know. I know. Almost I know. once a week, I, I say I'm going to get off Twitter. I just uh, there's so many trolls. But, you know, I, I, I did count. You have ninety two hundred and fifty one tweets as of this recording. Um, and that's about seven hundred a year since 2007 when you and I both joined. But oh my gosh. I, I want to go back to a couple of tweets that you sent. Which, again, this goes back to how you never know how hard it is to multitask until you become a parent. But you don't want to shame people for not wanting to be parents, which is perfectly fine. But you said that I used to think naively that being a childless was an advantage compared to colleagues with kids. And then you said being a mom has fueled my ambitions. And then you said that, uh, you know, expert problem solvers and multitaskers like parents I'm sorry for underestimating you. Like, yes. <laughs> what has it been like to decide to be a mom or dad and then face the hurdles of it ain't that easy? Yeah. The stereotype of parents in Silicon Valley, which skews very young, is that kids will hold you back and you have an advantage by being childless because you can work nights and weekends. You have more hours available. And before I had children, when I was in my 20s, I felt like the amount of time I had to spend on work was my superpower. You know, that was a a terrible way to look at work. I was not productive. (laughs) I wasted a lot of time um, and I sacrificed a lot of other parts of my life that, you know, I, I regretted. I didn't spend as much time with my family and friends or on my own personal health. And so by the time I, it was just very caught up in the workaholism in Silicon Valley And I loved my work. I didn't, no one was forcing me to. I was my own boss. I was choosing to to work what I was working, which was way too much. Weekends, nights, all the time, all the time. You know, when when I did finally have a child, I was really forced to reprioritize. And I had already kind of headed down that path. It was I had, a, I had a situation in my life. My father had a heart attack and I didn't go home to see him because I had very important work meetings. And I cannot tell you today what those work meetings were. They are, in retrospect, they were not important at all. And I immediately regretted not going home um, and started to reflect on the decisions that I was making and where I was putting work relative to everything else. And so, um, you know, slowly tried to move away from that by literally moving out of Silicon Valley. That was first. Um, Really needed to extract myself from that culture. Moved to New York, which, um, you know, I think people, first of all, it's just not a monoculture. There are people working in all sorts of industries in New York. It's not so saturated in tech. But people really enjoy life in New York. <laughs> they really do. Yes, so, we do. <laughs> um, so it was a good, that was good. Uh, that was the first step. I began um, teaching at Columbia Business School and I was just an adjunct. So I had a, a lot of flexibility and, you know, I was able to get back into the things that, um, you know, I wanted to do, including mostly spending the time and investing in the relationships that had been put on the back burner for so long. Then in 2017, I had my son and, 
really that helped me create very, very clear boundaries between my work and my life because I realized that before I had children, it was easy to blur those lines. It was easy to just like stay at work late. It was easy to do personal things at work and do work things in my personal life. And then, um, you know, having a child just pushed me into a realization that I wanted that time with my child to be quality time. I didn't want to be checked out and thinking about anything else. I wanted to be in the moment because it took me four years to have him and I wanted to savor every moment. That didn't mean that I was ready to become a stay-at-home mom and not work at all. I still had um, a lot of goals personally, professionally that I wanted to achieve. And it actually helped me really distill those goals um, because I, I knew that I needed to be as productive as possible during the workday and then shut off and have family time. And it's been the greatest. I have such a great work-life balance now. I'm really proud of where, uh, how far I've come. And I recognize, I feel bad for the parents that I you know, judged before. <laughs> it was not right of me. It wasn't fair. I think we have a, a bigger problem than I was part of that problem. But I see now how parents they really are superheroes. They, they, uh, they do so much. And, uh, the, the moms that work at Natalist with me are so productive during the, the daytime. We don't just like waste time, right? Like we get the job done and then we sign off and we respect each other's private time. We don't do happy hours. We don't do company dinners. If there's anything that we, you know, want to celebrate, we'll do a celebratory lunch um, on the company's time, but we don't want our work to bleed into their personal time because we want to be a parent-friendly workplace. Well, it's a good thing that when your son was born, they gave her the handbook of how to raise a child without a single problem, correct? Yeah, it was a great handbook. Yeah. I, I wish that existed. <laughs> well, you have you have two kids. Yeah, we got a BOGO. Um, we paid for one. We got two. Yeah. And you're, you're an IVF parent, so... Yeah, right? I'm infertile, okay. and my wife was barely fertile. My wife had a neurovrectomy a long time ago. She had a convoluted, um, uh, what are those things called, fallopian tube, just yep. channeling my inner, <laughs> inner biology. And, and we, we decided, it was really interesting, it was an economic decision. We decided that if it was cheaper to unfreeze my sperm and do the ICSI, or yeah. try to get like one guy out and do IUI, and... Then, you know, the turkey baster stuff. And we did the turkey baster because it was like a third the price of doing the, the ICSI on freezing in yeah. the hopes that we would just be able to not have to spend four times more money to do it the other way. And we got very karma was on our side and first shot implanted two things. We had like 30,000. My wife was like the most fertile person. She had no idea. Like something <laughs> like 26 oocytes were harvested. We had like 18 embryos like they graded them to like whatever put in two to get one got two and boy girl was the least likely uh, in the punnett square channeling our punnett square fans out yeah. there because <laughs> oh, they weren't at the time they weren't they weren't giving you gender they weren't genetic testing for gender no we just you know okay. we did all the regular like the jewish tay-sachs crap and whatever to yeah. whittle out the weird stuff the carrier screen yeah yeah That's, all that the stuff screen. yeah see yeah. moms know about that more than dads do but yes we did all that stuff to weed out the bad the bad jewish stuff the bad jewish gene stuff and they yeah two we had no idea yeah. and my son nearly cannibalized my daughter you know when one of them eats the other oh, by, you know yeah. but she 
escaped unscathed. She, they, do, they, do they know this story? Oh, they do. They certainly That's do. That's amazing. And he's 40 seconds older and will never let her live it down. <laughs> That's great. Well, tell me about, okay, so you said that you, you banked the swimmers when you got your diagnosis. Like, what was that? Tell me that story. So that was really pioneering for the 90s. It was unheard of to understand male fertility. But yeah. fortunately, I was in a pediatric protocol. Were you single protocol. or were you already with your wife? Oh, no. I was very single and very alone and and nothing to do but play piano. It was kind of a blessing at the time. I was still in college for that matter. So, yeah, yeah I, I was in pediatrics. And at the time, there's something called the Children's Oncology Group. And COG, as it's called, had guidelines that if you're a young man in pediatrics, like teen or whatever, you bank your sperm. You have to pay for it. It wasn't covered. So for like three grand, my mom drove me to the sperm bank. Not awkward. Hi, mom. And <laughs> did my job, took care of it. But it cost me like three grand a year to keep them frozen. So wow. from 96. That's way too much. It, that's, I mean, yeah, that's that, not that much anymore. No, no. Now it's it's but, a third the price or a tenth yeah. the price, whatever. And, and some employer benefits cover it too now. Well, you can send your kids the bill someday. One day they will have the bill yeah. along with their college tuition reimbursement yeah. request. Is it standard to bank when you get the diagnosis? As far as I'm concerned today for men, it is standard. But channeling okay. our mutual friend, Alice Creasy, she's on the fight of her life to guarantee and mandate that if a woman is with cancer, yeah. it's covered. The state covers it. It's free for life and a tie in the early act, which yeah. guarantees reconstruction for life if it's breast cancer. So you can potentially actually have baby milk. Yeah. Right. So let's, let's pivot to natalists because I think, sure. it, you know, like it, everything is the end result of what we experience. And I, I found this, I think your approach to give permission to women to know it's okay to be part of this tribe and okay. to create a new marketplace for them to find things that are trustworthy in this peer to peer world where you don't have to hope Amazon mm -hmm. reviews matter. Yeah. I mean, I started natalist out of my own experience, trying to get pregnant and buying a plethora of products. Some of them, um, good, some of them junk, all of them really outdated and clinical. Uh, yet these are over-the-counter consumer products that have existed for, you know, a while, yet they really felt so different from the self-care beauty, you know, other products that I use in my life and love. And so I didn't want to start a company. I had to start a company because no one was doing this. So we make everything. We want to be a one-stop shop for fertility and pregnancy that is judgment-free, based on evidence and high quality and affordable. And so we make everything from ovulation tests, pregnancy tests, prenatal vitamins, fertility lubricant, which is an FDA class two device and pregnancy self-care items like belly oil. Uh, so we have about 25 products on the market today. And my goal kind of coming into it was bringing all these products under one brand. And so we try to just make them better. So not just prettier and our products are so pretty, um, but really everything down to the instructions down to like when you open the box of pregnancy tests, there are little messages there, um, like crossing our fingers for you, just trying to delight the user and empower them on their journey. And so everything that we do, um, you know, is backed up with a ton of research and content around fertility and pregnancy that we have, we actually have a page on our, on our website called what we don't sell, 
And we list out things that we just don't think pass science class. There are just a lot of weird shit that companies are peddling to people who are at a very vulnerable time in their life and will do anything to get pregnant. But I will tell you that, you know, these yoni beads and these seed cycling things, like there's no evidence that that will help. Um, and then there's some products that not only will it not help, but it could actually harm your chances. So, you know, I, I kind of fell into this. I, as I said, like I didn't necessarily want to start a company. My, my, my son was one, I was in a very good place professionally with a lot of flexibility, but I was just so passionate about seeing this come to life. And so, you know, I, I felt like this was my time and I needed to, to do this and it's been great. It's been, it's been a really fun, you know, project. I'm still, I'm, you know, been trying for number two. Um, it is even harder than number one was this time around, which is expected. And, um, you know, working in this space at all times is a little, can be a little overwhelming and a little triggering. I help people get pregnant every single day and I can't get pregnant myself. Um, so it's definitely, you know, there's a lot of emotion in our work, but we've actually turned that into something really powerful and it helps me connect with our customers. And I'm able to kind of share some of the vulnerabilities and share some of my experience and my, my teammates as well, we all kind of had different journeys to parenthood. And we kind of use that to show people, especially in the beginning of their journeys, that it, it looks different for everyone and there's no judgment. It's okay. And we will help you every step of the way. Hallie Teco, healthcare optimist, adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. There's so many things to say here. Lots of acronyms, <laughs> BS, MPH, MBA, blue Twitter checkmarkist, founder and CEO at Natalist on the web at natalist.com. Thank you for this epic band reunion. I do want to have you back because you have to do a whole episode for this dad on what the hell is a Yoni Pearl. <laughs> we'll do it. Thank you for coming in out of patience. Thank you. It was great chatting. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.